It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at both bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au or of course through your favourite podcasting app. We also have a Twitter handle, at bzetechshow, all is one word. My name's Michael Steindl. Unfortunately, this morning, Kay, who got off her sickbed last week, is crook, but uh, the good news is we've got Laura back in today. So how are you today, Laura? Good morning, Michael. I'm feeling much better. <laughs> good to hear. Today, we're talking with Professor Kate Audie, who has just been appointed to the role of the Commissioner for Stain- Sustainability and Environment in the ACT. As usual with uh, so many of our guests, they have uh, done so much and have so many qualifications that we'd fill the show if we tried to list them, but in brief... Um, Kate has an arts law degree at Melbourne University, a master's degree from, uh, in environmental science at Monash University, a PhD from La Trobe University. Kate has spent nearly three years as a lawyer in the Aboriginal Legal Service, um, both privately as a solicitor and barrister and as a magistrate. She established the first Victorian Koori Court in Shepparton in 2002 and worked as a magistrate in Kalgoorlie from 2004-2008. She was on the Aboriginal Royal Deaths in Custody uh, Commission um, Kate was chairwoman of the Victorian Ministerial Reference Council on Climate Change Adaption in 2008, a member of the Premier Victoria's Reference Committee on Climate Change. And before her current appointment as ACT Commissioner, Kate was Victoria's Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability for five years. Good morning, Kate. Congratulations on your new appointment and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael. And hi, Laura. Hi, Kate. <laughs> hi. Um, Kate, you uh, worked in Aboriginal affairs for many decades and then moved into the environmental area. It seems a big change in focus. Can you just tell us a little bit about what led to that decision and how it came about? Yeah, I don't know that it is a change in focus. I think that Aboriginal affairs and environmental issues probably share about the same status in the priorities of some of our governments over time. And in fact, Aboriginal affairs equipped me, I think, to be really actively involved in conversations with people about those sorts of matters that Aboriginal people have to deal with, but it bleeds into what you need to do if you want to be involved in the environment. And those skills that I acquired from my time in Aboriginal affairs, I think, played out in the role I, hi, the role I was involved in with the um, Victorian Commissioner. Okay, thank you. So I'd like to start with that. Um, your time as a Victorian Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability. Your predecessor had released an exhaustive report that found Victoria was living beyond its means, driven by rampant and unsustainable materialism. His State of the Environment report called for a raft of changes and end to extensions of Melbourne's uh, urban boundaries, uh, much greater energy and water capture through improved building codes and the introduction of laws encouraging the widespread uptake of rainwater tanks, efficient appliances and cleaner cars. How much of that report was implemented? Yeah, there was a response to that report while I was the Commissioner. It's required by statute, 12 months from the time of the actual tabling of the report itself. And in relation to Ian McPhail's recommendations, there are about 289 of them, I think. I was of the view in 
in relation to that response that there were a number that were still outstanding and 289 recommendations is hard to uh, address, I think, from the point of view of examining whether they have been responded to. It's a bit like what happened with the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody with 355. Mm. So when we put together the State of the Environment report under my watch, we actually reduced the number of um, re- number of recommendations and I'm happy to say that some of those have certainly been met and that's been the case after there was a change in government. So it's hard to know how exactly they've all been responded to. People would have views about particular ones that say partial or not at all. And when you've got that many, it's quite difficult to tell. Yeah, okay. One particular aspect was a recommendation that all Cabinet decisions um, be referred to a climate change test before they become law. Did that happen? All decisions, sorry, I didn't catch the whole question. All what decisions? um, It recommended subjecting all Cabinet decisions to a climate change test, sorry? No, that that didn't happen. And, in fact, with the change in the the administration or the the jurisdiction changing to a coalition government, that certainly didn't happen. And climate change became one of the things that, uh, in my watch, was a bit of a hot issue. So, no, it didn't happen, and Cabinet decisions are not all uh, subjected to a climate change overview or oversight. I think Laura's going to tease that out a bit in a minute. Um, The ecological footprint of the average Victorian, Kate, uh, and I presume most of Australia, was found to be three times bigger than the world average. Has that been addressed at all, and if so, how? No, and look, in relation to ecological footprinting, when Ian produced his report, he had available to him an EPA assessment of that, which my office didn't have the ability to do, and there wasn't another one done while I was the commissioner. But it is the case that our... Was that because of limitations on the EPA, or...? Because the EPA just didn't uh, attend to it. I don't know why. I didn't explore it with them, but it certainly wasn't produced mm-hmm. for my time. Uh, look, in relation to ecological footprint, it is it is outrageous how much <laughs> how, how large our footprint is. Mm-hmm. I've just come from looking at the work for Canberra, for instance, and in Canberra it's 8.9. So the reality is that we are not doing well, even though we are you know, cutting into some of the things we need to do, which is reducing our energy use, reducing our waste, reducing our water use and ultimately we are as many people have said and it doesn't take a commissioner to say it we are profligate and we need to be better no doubt about it so just to be explicit that 8.9 means that on average um, the average Canberrian and and maybe Australian is using nine times the resources of the average person in the world so probably 40 times the the resources of of a person at the other end of the Spectrum. Yeah, and, and, and for people on the street, it means that we need more worlds than we've got. Whatever the yeah. figure is, it means we need more worlds than we've got, and we don't have those worlds. And we had Mary Robinson visit recently the University of Melbourne, where I chair the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. But um, the reality is that we've got to make sure that we leave no people behind, and we know that climate change is going to have an impact on the most vulnerable. And we are a wealthy, capitalist country, and there's lots of things that we could be doing to make sure that we don't leave anybody behind. And if we continue to live in the manner in which we do, that's exactly what will be happening. Um, Kate, you were saying uh, in an interview that under um, the Nepthine government there was a lot of uh, rhetoric around climate variability um, rather than, you know, focusing directly on climate change. It was that Did that make it extremely hard to implement positive change and is that something that you saw travel over um, with the change of government or was there... 
change in the air. There's been, a, there's been a very significant change, not just in rhetoric, but in application, I think, with the change in government. I, I'd be really candid about that. I think that there have been some significant steps made, there's no doubt about it. I think the point about variability in climate change is that if we're representing climate change as variability, we're suggesting it's a natural phenomenon, mm. we're suggesting that it will self-correct, and that's simply disingenuous. And some people would say it's just intellectually, you know, an intellectual... Um, it's a lie. So yes. it's disingenuous, certainly. Uh, look, the problem, the problem for people who are asked to do that in bureaucracies, I think, is that that's basically the policy of a government. My role as the independent commissioner was to do what I said I would do in the framework that we tabled in the parliament about state of the environment reporting. One of the things that I said we would do was write a climate change foundation paper. We used the very best available Australian science for that. Syro and BOM helped us to put that document together. It stands, it stands out now as a document for its time and demonstrating that you know, it's capable of being used right now and to the future because of the nature of the work that went into it. And um, we produced that report in spite of the fact that there was general pressure to be talking about variability and not talking about climate change at the time. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to linger on that so much as say we need to be looking to the future. I've said what I want to say about that. What we now need to do is make sure that we're dealing with the challenges that we face. And BZE is one of the standout organisations doing that. And I just want to... This isn't your question. <laughs> That's all right. make an observation, if you don't mind. As a person who lives in northeast Victoria before I go to Canberra, I'm a member of a crew called Strathbogie Voices, which set up an environmental session all last year. We had numerous sessions. And people came from all over. They came from farms, they came from businesses, they came from other towns to Euroa. And Stephen Bygrave came down by, you know, Liddy, by Link and produced a, a prep, did a prep for us and talked to people about what was happening with BZE. And people went away from that meeting really inspired. And what happened here was we formed, as a result of that meeting and Stephen and others talking to the community, what we call a committee of 40, which went off to talk about renewable energy. So people aren't worrying about what happened in the past. They're saying, the future is going to be a struggle. Let's get on with it. And they're doing it in little towns like Euroa, where I live. And that committee of 40 sat down, put together a renewable energy submission. It's gone to Lily D'Ambrosio's crew about renewable energy. We've suggested that there's an innovative way of doing some pumped hydroelectric storage out of our hills where there are already dams in situ. And the community is just really interested and enthusiastic about the possibilities. And that's, I think, where we really need to be focusing our energies. And it's really impressive that BZE is doing that mm. and talking to people who are not what I would describe as the usual suspects. Exactly. It sounds being me and you. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. exactly. It yes. sounds like um, you can make major change, maybe in smaller areas, if you actually do um, engage in business, engage in agriculture, uh, and yes. and so forth. So, moving on to your current appointment, um, you mentioned earlier in the week. Um, with the Canberra Times that you were attracted to ACT's cutting-edge approach to climate change, um, mm -hmm. which has been praised by environmental watchdog. Can you yeah. outline some of the direct policies yeah. that ACT has? I, I, I can. Um, and before I do that, let me just say that the City of Melbourne is doing some great work as well, and mm. cities generally have picked up on the fact that if we're producing out of cities 70% of greenhouse emissions, and we know we are, if cities get on board, there's a real capacity to do something to change the way we're tracking. In Canberra, what's fascinating, or in the ACT, what's fascinating is that they've set up a Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act, 
2010. They've decided that they'll have wind auctions and solar auctions, and they've done that in 2013 and 14 to deal with their energy consumption. And that's one of the really significant components of the ecological footprint in the ACT. They've just, in 2015, had their second wind auction. They're moving to the um, adaptation strategy being finalised in 2016, so that's climate change adaptation. And we know adaptation can't be hived off from mitigation, so I don't want to get into that discussion. That's <laughs> whether they're the same or different. Um, 2017, we'll see a future renewable energy auction taking place. By 2020, 100% renewable energy target by 2025 mm. is being established. They're talking also about getting the zero net emissions by 2060, and there will be staged um, interventions along the way. Now, the sort of stuff that's led on to that has been some leadership from government, community activity, the hard work of NGOs, the mm. scientific community just refusing to be diverted from what needs to be done. And while lots of people are saying, well, not lots, but while people are critical of the Paris Agreement, and that's understandable, it's really clear to me that there's... A uh, a significant upsurge of not just enthusiasm but committed action and purposeful purposeful staging action. And the ACT for me at the moment, on the material I've got before me, is saying to itself, we've got a role to play, let's get on with it. Now, as the Commissioner, I'll, it'll be my role to examine that, to assess it, so that's what I'll be doing when I get my feet under the desk. <laughs> but we need leadership to be demonstrated. And if I could just hark back to the City of Melbourne on this, setting up a consortium to think about how the City of Melbourne is going to buy in its renewable energy, which has just happened over the last week or so, mm. is also a real indication of the leadership that cities are engaged in. So, I'm look, I'm, I'm often accused of being an optimist, and I probably am, but I think that there's an awful lot happening and we need to be involved, and that's why... For instance, the, the Committee of 40 at Strathbogie is such a you know powerful indication of what we can do and how you can do it in small regional centres or cities and at the sub-national level. And there's a lot of talk about the sub-national level being the place where mm. change will be driven. So, you know, it's it's there's a lot happening and I don't think people are resiling from it. The fact that the um, Paris Agreement is being ratified today, you know, 22nd of April, big day mm. by, I'm told, 150 countries is good. I'm told that Greg Hunt is there. Sign on. <laughs> Our best minister. Um, you know, that is good. The that world. is good. Um, and can I just say, you know, it, it's not as if um, even when things get signed, people are going to take their foot off the accelerator. I, I think all that does is inspire people to do better and mm. embolden them. And that's great. I think mm. that's really good and, and healthy. Okay, Sorry, just, that wasn't your question. Either, <laughs> no, but it was a vital point. I'm just interrupting Laura's flow here a bit to um, to highlight. You mentioned several times in their leadership, and you said what happened in Canberra, um, the people, the science, and so on. But the leadership, and that has been so inspiring about Canberra, and as you say about Melbourne. And we interviewed Mark Watts when he was out here um, yeah. talking about Melbourne, but. Um, I think that that's for me is the crying shame in Australia that apart from these isolated incidents, we that leadership is the thing that is so seriously lacking, and in fact has been a negative leadership. It's been a leadership in the wrong direction, and and I think I, I sense this enormous um, upwelling of. of um, desire to act, but it's being squashed and led the wrong way rather than, than given the leadership I think people are crying out for. Mm. Yeah. I remember coming into the role as the Commissioner out of Aboriginal Affairs and having lots of people talk to me about leadership, leadership all the time. It was a really big theme when I first was appointed in Victoria. 
And when you come out of Aboriginal affairs and people are talking about leadership, it's it's an interesting it's, it's an interesting dichotomy in a way because you need to see it in all of everything, but in those two very you know fractured um, places. I remember thinking as I went around Victoria that leadership was something that many people thought was at the pinnacle of the triangle or the pyramid, mm. and that what I was seeing and what I was really encouraged by is that leadership's in all the interstitial spaces. So I saw great things happening out of the rural women leading change. There's lovely work being done at you know places like Whittlesea and Melton and Frankston about you know the Bayside Council, Surf Council, about what they see see as need. So I take your point that leadership at the head of the pyramid is mm. really fundamental but what's, what's also happening is that there's this extraordinary upsurge, I think, from everywhere else and we need to find ways to coordinate that. So finally my point in answer to that is that we need to be really good at communication. Mm. Uh, I'm on this radio program struggling with some of the words I'm using and thinking that's not very clear. But we need to be really good at communicating and we need to use every sort of media available to us, which is one of the reasons why our little gang, Strathbogie Voices, has taken on a community radio station hour at Seymour. Mm -hmm. The Seymour program doesn't even come to you, right? It goes to all the other parts of the Shire. And we did it because we knew we had to communicate what we were doing. And that takes time. And that's one of the fundamental lessons out of Aboriginal Affairs. Nothing is done quickly. Everything takes mm. time and you have to have grounded conversations in places that people care about because that's where you'll really get cut through. Mm. And that is that's happening. where leadership needs to find <laughs> itself. And we see that happening here and without being an auction plug, we've seen that happen here in North East Victoria with Cathy McGowan in the seat of Insight. Oh, She's everywhere. That's been in inspirational. Talk, <clears throat> yeah, she's talking to people about trains and water and trucks and you know, vegetables and schools and what, but she's talking to people and she's listening. And you notice that the community has really responded in a way that we haven't seen for a very long time. Mm. So you're saying that obviously we do need to communicate this matter clearly, um, and we've got the scientists that have communicated the urgency of it. Um, so, how do you think we should deliver this urgency in a way that people can digest it and? get behind it immediately without being deterred and paralysed. Yeah, yeah, without being paralysed. And para paralysis was one of the other big themes when I came into the role in Victoria. People were worried about that because it was all gloomy. Mm. I, I learned a lot about communication. I'm a lawyer. I like long sentences. I don't really get social media or I didn't. I had to. I had to learn about all that stuff. I'm still not very good at it. Um, I think we've got to move past what we've done in the past. It's no longer just the text-based we thought in my office that one of the ways to communicate climate science most effectively was to be thinking about the use of infographics. We had a really terrific young bloke who was a New Yorker come and do some work for us on that. I think those infographics will stand the test of time. They are approachable. And one of the things that I, that I noticed as I took them around Victoria after we finished that report was people responded to things like the map of Victoria. The minute you put something like that in front of people, they went to the place that was theirs, they looked at what was happening and they asked themselves what they could do better or what was the problem. So we've got to talk to people in every, you know, in every place we can, but in the places that are important to them. And that means we've got to have feet on the ground and bums on seats. And I think some people have got that with the town hall meetings that they're having in relation to election campaigns now. So... We need to be slick, but we need to be we need to be simple, and mm. we need to be old fashioned as well. You know, I mm. mean, we just need to be everything. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, welcome, to, welcome to being everything. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and uh, you certainly see that in the climate movement. You, you meet people in all these different directions. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. Um, we're talk- speaking with Professor Kate Audy, who has just been appointed to the role of Commissioner for Sustainability and the Environment in the ACT. Kate, can I just hark back again to that um, discussion about Melbourne and, and your role, the future... Melbourne ambassador looks at the city's, city of Melbourne's strategies for managing climate change. Um, you did mention the uh, tender that Melbourne just put out this week, but can you tell us any more about the climate strategies that the city of Melbourne has already implemented? Yeah, can I can I not do that? Can I talk about what they're trying to do with the future planning, if you yep. don't mind? Because Great. I think that's I think that's actually really important. The city of Melbourne asked people to get on its website. The website was inviting ideas and commentary on ideas. So you didn't just post your idea about climate change, for instance. You were able to comment on somebody else's. And what I found when I was going through those as an ambassador for the city of Melbourne, one of six, was that there were a lot of things that weren't under the climate change rubrics that actually were. So you might find people talking about bicycling and it might not be under the climate change um, icon, but it certainly was. So I think there's that point that we want people to respond to climate change as if it is everywhere and everything, and it is. Mm -hmm. The future Melbourne planning arrangements will bring together citizens' juries in the next little while, and they're working on the really random selection of people to come into those conversations, uh, you know, shortly. And that will involve people responding to some of the ideas and putting up their own and having conversations about what the plan should look like for the future. So I think that it's a really novel way of going about it. I think it's commendable. That's why I'm prepared to be involved in it. And I think it'll produce some interesting outcomes from the point of view of the community and, in in a way, constituents and the citizens. One of the things that's going to come out of that, though, is that while we're talking about climate change, just harking back to my earlier point, we'll also be talking about water. So we'll be talking about water-sensitive urban design. We'll be talking about transport, which is, of course, a climate change issue. Energy is a climate change issue. Mm. We'll be talking about biodiversity in the city. So I actually see climate change, and I think this is somewhat moved on from where it might have been in the past. I see climate change as in everything, Mm. in every single Mm. thing that we're doing, in everything that we can do. And previously we got locked into a debate about, you know, whether people were denying it and we were being, in a way, I think, uh, sidetracked into that conversation. I was certainly sidetracked into it on occasion, Mm. and I know others were. I think we move away from being sidetracked and start thinking about action and integration and, you know, all those other words, alignment and collaboration and all those cooperation type things. And climate change is pivotal to everything. People will disagree with me and some people will say no case, but I I really do think that um, the plan, when it talks about all of those interstitial, you know, sideline issues, Mm. we'll be talking about climate change and what we do about it. And as I say, cities know that they produce 70% of greenhouse emissions and cities know that if they act, there'll be some change. And that's an international phenomenon. I just want to give a bit of a wrap to the Urban Climate Change Research Network because I'm one of the authors for a report that's coming out later this year. And that's by, um, you know, it's, it's headed up by NASA and the Columbia University. But we, in New York in late 2013, had hundreds of people sitting around tables talking about what we needed to do about climate change research and, and cities. And we talked about things like health, of course, housing and low-income development, energy transformations, water security and governance. So, you know, all of those things are part of the conversation. 
Does that answer your question? I'm yeah, taking no, that's, you that's, everywhere, that's, haven't I? That's great <laughs> stuff. Um, and it adds music to my ears because I've felt for a long time um, that that this is not just a technical issue. Um, as you say, it, climate change is and everything right through to our levels of, of government and our economic system where we're premised on a system of infinite growth in a finite planet. And, yeah. and I'm looking around actively for where the work is being done that actually says, well, what new economic system would we have? What new governance would we have that doesn't keep on doing the same old thing? Yeah, and Naomi Klein's book is a great starting point for anybody who wants to think about that issue, no mm-hmm. doubt about that too. You, you take me back to a really important point that was made by a great fellow, Frank Fisher, and some of your lead, some of your listeners will know Frank, passed away a couple of years ago, oh, yes, the person yeah. who who coordinated the environmental science masters that I did at Monash. And we all arrived out there, you know, bright-eyed, thinking about the environment. And one of the things Frank said to us was, you're all here to think about the environment. And he stopped his pause. It was a bit of a silence. And he said, I'm telling you that the environment is you. And it was a really powerful, brief comment. And mm. many of us went away thinking about that. Because climate change is a people issue. It's also a technical issue. We'll find some technical solutions. But at the end of the day, it's going to involve the sort of things that Alan Pearce talks about, which is turning off the light when you leave the room, not wasting water and reducing your consumption. And all of those things also play into climate change and, you know, the, the uh, particularly we all hear about growth. The reality is that Frank Fisher, I think, at the end of every fortnight was um, a household of three producing one litre of milk, you know, one of those litre cartons mm. of milk of waste. Mm. You know, it, uh, Frank's, Frank's a fanatic about it, but it's so indicative of what we can do and mm. how we can reduce our footprint in all sorts of ways. And, you know, it, it's just a case of the environment is us. Mm. E- except that, um, arguing the flip side of that, I know so many people who feel like they're doing what they can at that level, they're doing the recycling and minimising their energy and stuff and this comes back to the leadership question that yeah. that then they feel stymied about going further They they there's stuff that is outside their control that they can't do yeah. Um, yeah and look that's a point that's a really great point because it speaks to me as a lawyer mm. and as a lawyer let me just give you some examples that hark back to my Aboriginal Affairs background we set up the Koori Courts in Victoria with legislation. It made it so much easier to deal with conflicted views because you could say the legislation is telling me what I need to do and it's, uh, you know, it's not something I'm doing because I want to. It's, 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 it's regulated. And it meant that you didn't have to spend a lot of time with those conversations and you got very clear leadership from government about what was going to be done. When I went to WA, we did the same thing without legislation or regulation in Kalgoorlie and Norseman, a town south of Kalgoorlie. And it was a lot harder to do, there's no doubt about that. But at the end of our my sort of three years there doing that, it was really clear to me that we'd got some real cut through because people were doing it because they'd had the thoughtful conversations with each other about why. So my point is it's not an either or. It's not regulate or don't regulate because, of course, the non-regulators are the neocons and we don't agree, well, I don't agree with that position. But it's about both of those things playing off and understanding how you change people's views, mm. how you adjust cultures to respond to challenges, and it can be done in a number of ways. We do need, and this is what good city regulation and good state regulation is showing, we do need governments 
to legislate or to regulate or to make it very clear that there are things that are tolerable and acceptable and there are things that are not. And we do need, at the end of the day, probably there to be, um, you know, punishments for people who, who mm. don't comply. And that's what that's what ultimately what, what makes regulation work. Now, whether that's going to work in environmental context is another matter. And we've just all looked at what happened in the Latrobe Valley with regulation mm. and we're all examining where we go through from here. Mm. So yep. you can have as much regulation as you like, but it's not always optimal and it doesn't yep. always affect the change you want yep. it to. Yeah. Kate, we um, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for your, your time today, um, especially given how busy you are and, as you Thanks. said, trying to get your feet under the desk. Where can our listeners yeah. find out more information about today's discussions? Oh, we'll have something We'll have something on um, our Strathbogie Voices site. That's one of the places. <laughs> and, and how do they find that very quickly? Oh, just just www.strathbogievoices.com.au mm-hmm. and my Twitter feed, at Kate Orty, and... Yep. In relation to the ACT, just get onto the ACT's websites and have a look at what's happening up there. And for the City of Melbourne, go and have a look at the City of Melbourne website about the future planning efforts there. Future and, Melbourne, yeah. And join, yeah, join in the conversations. So City of Melbourne, yep. um, ACT government, and join in the conversations. Can I just say finally, we've got to finish, but... These things don't change without people engaging and people shouldn't be despairing because I've witnessed change, I think, in the five years that I've come back from WA. Yeah. yeah. Thank you again. Beyond Zero Science and Technology Show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to bze.org.au and click on the podcasts or follow the, the Twitter feed. Um, just briefly, there's a, a massive um, series of protests around the world trying to get Paris um, agreements honoured to keep coal and gas oil and oil in the ground. Australia's is on May the 7th, 8th. The, exact, the main thing is on Mother's Day on the 8th. What better present could you give mothers? It's in Newcastle. Long-term campaigners and first-timers are equally welcome. We're going to have, um, we've already got 350 people subscribed coming up. Go to the website breakfree2016.org, breakfree2016.org, and log on there. You'll get subsidised bus transport and so on. Thanks again from the Beyond Zero show. Happy Earth Day, guys. Thanks for joining us, Kate. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Did you miss the latest episode of your favourite 3CR show? Visit 3CR's new improved website. Now you can listen to the latest episode of almost every 3CR show with one click, including music, arts, community languages, current affairs and more. No need to podcast, no need to download. Visit 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Then go to your favourite programs page to listen. Listen.